0: This is Intersection. I'm Matthew Petty. This month marks 10 years since 17-year-old Trayvon Martin was fatally shot by Neighbourhood Watch volunteer George Zimmerman. The unarmed black teenager's death sparked huge protests, and the case brought national and international attention to Sanford and shone a spotlight on Florida's gun laws, the police, and the legal system. Next week, the WMFE News team will take a closer look at the case with interviews with people who knew Trayvon, Sanford city officials and community leaders. We'll discuss the connections between this case and the Black Lives Matter movement and explore how Sanford has changed. For more, I'm joined by WMFE News Director LaToya Dennis. LaToya, thanks for joining me.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: I'm also joined by WMFE All Things Considered host Nicole Darden-Creston. Nikki, thanks as well.
1: Glad to be here.
0: Victoria, I want to start with you. What are some of the questions that we're looking to address with this in-depth reporting series?
1: You know, we'd love to find out. What we're looking to explore is exactly who was Trayvon Martin, right? I think there is a narrative that was put out there 10 years ago of who this young man was. He was 17 when he's, when he was killed, as we all know. And what we really want to answer is who he was, and beyond that, how far have we actually come? You know, it's, it's been 10 years. It's been a decade since he was killed. And in that time, what progress have we seen and where are we still lagging?
0: So why is the 10-year mark important in this case?
1: You know, again, ten years. Ten years is enough to get into to dig into an area and really, really cover some ground if that's what you're looking to do, right? And when I think about it, Trayvon Martin would have turned 27 years old earlier this month, right? And there was a huge celebration that was held for him um, in the Miami area because that's where he was originally from. But when you think about your your late 20s, when you think about being 27 years old, those are formative years. Those are when you're really coming into yourself as an adult and Trayvon didn't get that opportunity um, as we all know so I think it's important to look back and say what did any of this mean
0: mm-hmm. just building on that a little bit Latoya why do you think it's important to take a closer look at the case and to tell the story anew to people who may not be so familiar with the case
1: <laughs> I think we have very short memories as a society, right? Um, And so I think it's important to revisit things because none of what's happening today is happening in a vacuum, right? And so if we can look back and we can learn those lessons from 10 years ago, if we can learn those lessons from 50 years ago, right, maybe we'll be better as a society for it. And so I think it's important to know about the, the Trayvon Martins of the world, the people before him, and the people who have come after him that have unfortunately been in similar situations,
0: Mm -hmm. Nikki, you've also gone back and interviewed some of the key figures from that time 10 years later. What do they remember most, and how did Trayvon Martin's killing change them?
2: Well, you're right, Matt. I have talked to a variety of people, and what I hear so far most often is that the five-ish week period stands out for them in between when Trayvon Martin was shot and when... George Zimmerman, who confessed to shooting him, was arrested. That was a time of exponential growth as far as people who were concerned when this happened, people who saw the trauma happen and wondered why George Zimmerman was not arrested, uh, at least held, um, not even necessarily indicted, which he did end up being, or you know it wasn't about getting a guilty or not guilty verdict in the court they just wanted to Trayvon Martin to have his his time in court so this fight grew and it grew very quickly from a local movement to a statewide to a national to even a global movement and there was such an importance there um for folks who experienced it and who were involved in the fight. And there was a coming together. This was one of the early cases as far as using social media was concerned. Um, So I think it was kind of a lesson for people who are still advocates to this day um, that more voices... Uh, it's It was just it was power in numbers to get people to listen to get the authorities to listen to their concerns, and you asked how this changed some of their lives? Well, I talked to a woman who was in her early to mid twenties at the time, and as you said, that's a Latoya that's kind of a, a time of of growth and uh and formative years, and for her, that time helped turn her into the advocate she is to this day. And it helped her deal with something personal that she'd been through. Her older brother uh, had been shot in the back by a police officer when she was very young. So this is not a, as you said Latoya, this didn't happen in a vacuum. This was not a a one-off situation. Um, But it, it was one that arguably had garnered the most attention to date. So it offered a lot of of opportunities to learn and grow that came from such a tragedy.
0: Nikki, I covered some of this case as it was happening. You were there, you covered this yourself and I mean my memories kind of revolve around some of the some of the rallies that happened and some of the, the key figures in the civil rights movement. The likes of the Reverend Al Sharpton um, coming down and speaking in Central Florida in Sanford. What do you remember most from that time?
2: I can only speak for myself, but for me personally, this tragedy was something that allowed me to learn a lot. I mean, I've covered a lot of of heartbreaking stories in my time, but this one taught me more than anything else um, how much I don't know, and that may sound silly, but I'll give you an example. I was interviewing someone, and he was a young black father, and he mentioned uh, that he and his cohorts were going to have a conversation with their young black sons, and it was a conversation that their fathers had had with them about um, the protocols of interacting with a police officer The talk, young black man. The talk. I had never heard of that before. This was a brand new dimension to my reality, and... That more than anything and the stakes of that conversation and and me being completely oblivious to this fact of American life, of the families next to me, it taught me how much I don't know um, and how important it is to have diverse voices and to have inclusion because you can't know it until there's someone there to share their lived experiences with you and you mentioned the rallies uh, i remember the rally as well at fort mellon park and it was about 8 to 10,000 people or so it was huge in this very small space and i i remember that at the time um the sanford police department was uninvolved in that rally uh they had uh because there were issues that were going on as as the situation was worked through. Uh, Seminole County police were there directing traffic uh, but inside the rally there were there were no police figures and it was the most polite actively kind group of eight to ten thousand people that I have ever experienced. Um, I remember climbing up on a chair to take a picture and four strangers stepped out of the crowd with their arms up ready to catch me if I fell down sort of all at the same time um i remember being walked to my car um as people were were told from the stage to you know take care of each other and walk each other to your cars at the end of the rally it was actively kind and uh you know, I've been to concerts, I've been to rallies, I've been to a, a lot of large events in my life, and and that stood out for me.
0: Mm-hmm. Latoya, I just want to come back to what, what Nicole was talking about there, and and the talk which you picked up on. Was this the first time that this kind of notion had really kind of come into the public consciousness on a on a grand scale? Like this idea that here was a conversation that a lot of families in America may have to have, but not everybody is aware of that.
1: So, the thing about this Trayvon Martin case is that it wasn't just people in Florida that were paying attention. It wasn't just people in the United States who were paying attention. This became a global movement, right? People across the country, across the world saw this and they were angered and they were protesting. And so, when you talk about the talk um, and knowledge of the talk, you know, making it to a larger scale. I I mean, to my knowledge, yeah, that's this is probably the first time that something like that um became that well known, right? Is this the first instance of, you know, an an incident where a young black male, a youth, a teenager was killed and and there was, you know, public outrage? Absolutely not. Right, and the talk has been going on for generations. The talk continues today, but for that to be something that the world was talking about, I don't think I rem—I re- I don't recall that in any other instance before then.
0: Mm-hmm. Earlier, Latoya, you referred to um, the celebration of Trayvon Martin's life and uh, what would have been his 27th birthday, and one of our reporters, Joe Burns, went to Miami to report. On that celebration a week or so back, and it just kind of shows that the case really sent ripples way beyond Central Florida, didn't it?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Trayvon was in Sanford visiting visiting his dad, right? But he was a young man from the Miami area, um, and that's where the majority of his family was, um, and... His, that's where his friends were. That's where he went to school. Um, and so, yeah, there, there's definitely a movement to keep him alive there as well.
0: The series doesn't end with this in-depth week of stories. So what comes next for WMFE's in-depth reporting on the legacy of the Trayvon Martin case?
1: Well, it's how that legacy extends to now, right? And it, it goes beyond Trayvon Martin and to social justice and civil rights and how far have we come and what's happening in Florida, right? So whether it's voting laws, whether it's stand your ground, whatever it may be, we plan to dive into that. Um, This series will run through the end of May. And if you're, you're thinking about that right now, you might be saying something else happened in May. What happened in May? Two years ago in May, um, that's when the, the George Floyd protests kicked off across the country, right? And so it seems fitting to end this series where that started, at the time that that started, two years ago, um, because there's a definite connection. I don't think anyone can deny that.
0: Well, WMFE News Director LaToya Dens, thank you so much for joining us.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: And All Things Considered host Nicole Darden-Creston. Nikki, thanks so much as well.
2: Thanks for having me, Matt.
0: And you can tune to Morning Edition and All Things Considered and Intersection all next week to hear our in-depth series exploring the legacy of the Trayvon Martin case 10 years on. Up next, friends and family of Mia Marcano say background checks for apartment complex employees and other safety features for apartment residents could have saved her life. We'll hear from the Mia Marcano Foundation about efforts to honour the college student's life with action. That's when Intersection returns. This is Intersection, I'm Matthew Petty. Mia's Law, named for a 19-year-old Valencia college student Mia Marcano, aims to improve safety for apartment residents. Authorities believe Marcano was killed in her apartment at Arden Villas last September. A maintenance worker at the apartment complex, Armando Caballero, whose sheriff's deputies were investigating as a person of interest in Marcano's disappearance, was found dead by suicide a few days after Marcano was reported missing. In a moment, we'll hear from Mia Foundation spokesperson Jody Lewis about Mia's Law and other efforts to honor Marcano's legacy. First, though, here's Heather Tavares, a resident at Arden Villas who knew Marcano. She's also worried about security.
3: My main concern is the gate. They just replaced it, um, and they're like in transition, moving companies with like the gatekeepers or the security. So there hasn't been. like a stable security person except the one all day and then there's no person in the evening and they did agree to have like security going around and checking like in a golf car and checking the um parking and stuff but I haven't seen that yet either it's more real now that's like she was from here I actually like knew her and met her so it was like afterwards it's definitely more realistic that it's can happen. I'm definitely just more cautious in, like, checking that I have my key in my hand, that I'm, like, checking all around me when I'm walking in the dark and stuff, to my car. Just more paranoid.
0: That was Heather Tavares, a resident at Arden Villas. Well, Mayor's law is making its way through the legislature, but without some of the provisions originally in the bill, like criminal background checks for apartment employees... WMFE intern Allegra Montesano spoke with the Mia Marcano Foundation's Jody Lewis about the foundation's goals, including improving safety for people like Mia and supporting the families of missing people.
4: Jody Lewis is the board director and spokesperson for the Mia Marcano Foundation. Thank you for joining me today.
5: Thank you for having me.
4: Of course. What are you hoping to accomplish with Mia's law?
5: Oh, uh, protection. Protection for the two-point eight million residents in the state of Florida and the millions of residents in the state of Virginia. I don't know if you know, but the law has also been picked up in the state of Virginia as well. But Mia's law has three basic pillars. Um, One is increasing the notice that um, landlords have to give tenants um, before they access their unit. Two, making it a legal requirement for um, apartment complexes to Um, fully vet and run the proper background checks on their employees, particularly the ones that have access to enter units, and three, um, to, to legally mandate that they keep Uh, logs of um, all personnel that enter into apartment units and this would be pretty much governed uh, by the Florida Apartment Association on the Florida side of things um, where they have to go out and do audits anyway yearly with their apartment complexes and this would just be another element added to that audit just to make sure that whomever has access to your unit um, has been fully vetted, is is safe, uh, you know, and we we know as much as possible about people that's coming in and out of our apartment complexes.
4: What is the state of Mia's law looking like as of right now? I do understand it passed unanimously in the Senate, correct?
5: Correct. Uh, both in the Senate and the House and unanimously and the Virginia side of things as well through two of their committees on the House side um, has passed unanimously. So on the House side in Florida, it's going into the Judicial uh, Committee and then on the Senate side, it's going into the Appropriations in General Uh, analysis committee and that um, it'll be in those two committees and the Virginia side it's going on um, it's in the house right now and it's going to the basically a similar appropriations uh, committee uh, this upcoming week but it's moving pretty quickly through the process in both states right now.
4: And what have you heard from the Central Florida community regarding Mia's law? Have there been many shared personal experiences uh, with that lack of apartment safety?
5: Yes. And that's kind of what has dri- has driven us to keep this thing going. Um, once th- this unfortunate incident happened to Mia, there were so thousands of, of, of people coming out of the woodwork saying they've had very similar experiences where maintenance workers have accessed their apartments without permission, without a work order. They've come home and there's been people in their apartments. Um, one lady even, you know, um, reached out and said that she was in the shower and a maintenance man just came came in you know and laughed at her you know like it just was the it's been nightmares we've had um we've had people actually email their stories in we have thousands of people that have submitted uh about their experiences central florida has been um just It's actually been quite disappointing in that area because there's been so many stories that's come out of the Central Florida Florida area of these types of incidents. And we we don't want to be like anti-apartment complex. We want to be able to work with the apartment complexes. We want them to see that this is something that we can work together with relieving. We want them to want their residents to be safe and secure. Um, So the foundation are, are taking the necessary steps to do that, not just with the law, but even some programs that we're going to be rolling out in the next couple of weeks that we'll be able to work with apartment complexes to make sure that these things can stop. And, um, but Central Florida, they have been so supportive and with this law. They've been definitely pushing us to continue. Um, we have almost upwards of almost 40,000 signatures um, on our petition last time I checked. And I think, you know, we're going to get this done. It's, it's needed. It's wanted. Um, it's, a, it's a no-brainer for us.
4: Can you please talk about the Safe and Secure Accreditation Program and are people signing up for this accreditation?
5: Absolutely. I'm so glad you asked about that. That is a new program that we're working on. It hasn't released just yet. We just signed a um, contract with RepPAC uh, security worldwide that's going to be working with us on that particular program. And what it is, it's basically a set of criteria that we've been um, able to come up with that um, requires apartment complex to meet. And we will be issuing um, a, a different uh, accreditations to apartment complexes that will tell the world that they have in fact met um, the criteria that we believe is required for them to be deemed a safe and secure apartment complex. So we'll be giving out butterfly ratings. So if apartment complex has met the minimum, they will receive one butterfly. Um, they will receive um, advertisement and promotion. Um, from us, they'll be listed on our website. We'll be supporting that that um, that apartment complex and letting its residents know that they have a, have accomplished the one butterfly rating. Obviously, it goes out two butterflies. You've met the extended version of those criteria, and three butterflies. You've met all of the requirements, which is pretty significant as far as gated community or security um, guard, twenty four hour security guards, cameras on property, cut you know your hedges are cut low, lighting so there's less likely um people can do stuff in dark areas so there's a lot of criteria that's listed on our website and we're really excited to be um We've reviewed this criteria with, you know, a number of different organizations and we're hoping to launch this in the next coming weeks we're pretty much ready to go. So that's a program we're very excited about and like I said, we'll be working with apartment complex will be supporting them in their efforts we will be promoting them. And then when young people go off to college or anyone is looking for an apartment, um, they can actually come to our website and say let's see which apartment in this particular area has met these these credentials that are working with this organization so I think it's a win-win-win for everyone the tenant gets the peace of mind of knowing that that apartment complex takes their safety and security very seriously the apartment complex gets the marketing push and the the acknowledgement that they are a secure facility and of course we get to see um, individuals uh, live in a safe environment so that program is is dear to our heart and like I said we're hoping to get it launched in the next couple of weeks.
4: In terms of advocacy, do you have other plans to continue to raise awareness for um, apartment safety?
5: Absolutely. Um, right now, the the foundation um, launched uh, mid-October, so... We have um, done a lot of work since October to, to now, but it is definitely um, a part of our mission to continue to raise awareness. We will be launching a community program where we go. We want to be able to go and speak to residents, um, to college students, to parents, to single women. We are looking at other organizations to partner with. Um, we, we're looking at a lot, a lot of different ways to advocate and get in the community and speak about safety. And also just continue to tell me Mia's story, I think that, you know, Mia did everything right. Her family did everything right. You know, they properly prepared her to go off to college. Mia had all of the, Tasers and the pepper, the pepper spray, and she had a, a plethora of uncles and 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 her brother and her family and her father that was um, very well involved um, with her life. Her dad took her to college. He installed extra security locks in her windows. He did the walkthrough of her apartment. So this family did everything right. Um, you cannot prepare for a maintenance man having a key to your apartment and waiting in your apartment when you get out of work. You know, th- these are things you cannot prepare for I- I- in theory, right? Like th- she did everything right and something still went wrong. Their family did everything right and this tragedy still happened. So people need to understand that um, by any means possible, you need to be able to protect yourself. We wanna be able to talk to college students about um, you know what this means to be out in the real world. How this happened to me—a a lovable, great, you know, great student, um, amazing family—had all the security mechanisms mechanisms in place, and this still happened to her. So, we want college students, we want students, we want people in general to just know that you know there are um, there are dangers in the world. So, you know, there are there will be a a big push um, as far as community outreach and advocacy. And I'm just getting the word out um, about her story and and what happened.
4: So to kind of lead into this question, the mission of the Mia Marcano Foundation is to support, educate, and provide resources to families of missing persons. What additional resources do the families of missing persons need?
5: It's a really great question. And this is how the foundation was actually born. Um, The day that we found um, Mia, um, her family, myself, their their legal representatives sat around and we were obviously just trying to take in what was happening. Um, but also we got into an in-depth conversation about the resources that this family did have because of who her parents are. Um, they did have access to um, persons that can help them, that can assist them. We had access to individuals that knew people in media who had access to uh, legal legal people, had access to um, volunteers to come out and help search. So as we were sitting around talking about, although this is a very tragic event, what would they have done if they did not have access to these resources, you know, to Food and water bottles when they were out searching. They had access to almost 300 people showed up um, to help look for her. Um, families don't have that. Families, you know, the average family doesn't have, doesn't know how to draft a press release and get the media to come out and 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 help them search for the loved one. The average family doesn't have access to civil rights attorneys and and you know large scale volunteers and. The nine yards, so these are some of the resources we want to be able to pass on to families that are going through this situation. When you're going through this, it's very hard to think. It's, you know, you just wanna get out, you just wanna find your loved one. You don't really know what to say to the police officer that's saying, oh, call us back if you don't hear from them in another few days. You don't really know what to say or what um, regist- uh, registration you need to register your loved one on. And we wanna be able to provide those resources for them. We wanna be able to get involved with their cases and say, hey, you know, we got it. You know, your family needs food for the day. So you don't have to focus on what everybody's eating. We can provide that. You know, you, the, the volunteers need water. We can provide that. You need." access to media, we can provide that. You don't know how to deal with the police department that's kind of maybe potentially giving you the runaround. We have ways of uh, rectifying that. Let's contact your state representatives. Let's contact your local reps. Let's contact the school and let them know how important this is and if any students have any information. So we provide not only information, but physical resources to families that are going through this situation.
4: What about education what kind of safeguards are you advocating for
5: This is such a touchy thing right because I, 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 I get asked this often about education and and what can let's say women do or learn to prevent this and I don't know what the answer is because I, I, I'm not ra- I have two daughters I cannot raise them to be military you know um, martial You're like they, they can't beat. 200 pound guy that is going after them right i can only do i'm sorry i can only do what i can do to to prepare them um, and give them the tools and resources but at some point in time i think the conversation is not around educating um like women um i think the conversation needs to go back to um the education around our men and our young men, uh, because evidenced by the amount of um, domestic violence and you know the fact that most women that die of murder are at the hands of people of, of men. I think at some point in time, the onus needs to be put in men to stop men from killing women. I don't know what we can do as women to stop men from killing us or harming us or raping us. So there, the, the question around education, um, you know, it's, it's in an obvious sen- sense, we want to educate students and um, parents about safeguards and resources, but I believe we're doing that. I believe that there are so many resources out there around what to do, what not to do. Um, I believe that, um, you know, good parents talk to their their um, their children, you know, often as possible about how to protect themselves. But at some point in time, I think it gets a bit deeper um, I don't think that this is a. I don't think that this is a solution that women can actually come up with. I know that wasn't your question, but I wanted to kind of drive that that in. I think this is a solution that should be led by men because men are the ones um, statistically that are harming um, harming women.
4: And on social media pages for the Mia Marcano Foundation, there are multiple posts regarding other missing women. Will the Mia Marcano Foundation be regularly bringing attention to missing women in the area in the future?
5: Absolutely. Um, We have a Find My Loved One program that we're hoping to launch in April this year um, that specifically will deal with missing um, persons and um, getting involved. We have been involved, I think, three or four um, missing person situations uh, since the launch of the organization, but just want to do our due diligence and make sure that we have all the mechanisms in place to help these families the best way that we can. So we have taken on some urgent cases and getting out the word. We've reached out to legislation, we've reached out to police departments, we've reached out to school systems, we've posted on social media, we've shown up to help search for individuals, um, and people can absolutely get in contact with the organization if they are going going through the situation, we will help you. We will help your family. But the official program um, will launch sometime in April. So we, we're not stopping. We're not preventing it because we do have the reach. We do have the, the resources. So definitely continue to reach out for those that um, need help with locating someone. But again, the official program will launch in, in April of this year.
4: Jody Lewis is the board director and spokesperson for the Mia Mercado Foundation.
0: Thanks for your time.
5: Thank you very much.
0: WMFE intern Allegra Montesano with that interview. Still to come, MLK was a tricky creator Scott King babysat the actor John Lithgow when he was a kid, and other vignettes from the intersection of nerd culture and Black History Month. We'll have more on that when we return. This is Intersection, I'm Matthew Petty. When the pandemic hit, Nerd Night Orlando founder Ricardo Williams took a break from organizing in-person events. Since then, he's found other ways to channel his celebration of nerdiness and learning new things, and this month, he's focused on the intersection of black history and nerd culture. Well, Ricardo, thanks again for joining me.
6: Absolutely, yeah. Thank you for having me, Matthew.
0: Now, you've been posting historical vignettes, I guess you could call them, on your social media streams this month, highlighting Black History Month. I wonder if you could just talk a little bit about what you've been focusing on, and also talk to me about nerdier things. Uh, tell me about that.
6: Yeah. So, um, you know, I've, I've, like you said, I've hosted nerd night for, uh, going on nine years <laughs> next month. And, uh, you know, I've always had this idea in the back of my mind where I would just kind of, you know, do some type of format where I could, uh, have like a short platform for like little known facts. And, um, when the pandemic hit, it was like, well, I have a bit more time. So I just started kind of making these little short videos And they were primarily for Instagram just because, you know, the reels were kind of a new thing at the time and, you know, TikTok and that whole kind of format. Um, But, um, you know, obviously we use them on all platforms, but really it's just like a way to kind of show that there's an intersection, uh, no pun intended, you know, for your show, (laughs) but between, you know, culture and history and movies and these kinds of things. And of course with Black History Month, which is something that's very dear to me, I wanted to be able to use that same kind of platform to like, tell stories and, and little facts that people don't normally know about. And um, I, I used to think that it would be like silly to do that because I'm like, well, people must know these things. Like mm-hmm. I owe them a lot of my friends know them, but then I'll start talking to new friends or other places. And, and people are just like, oh, well, I didn't know that, you know? And I'm just like, oh yeah, we got to do this. You know, <laughs> we got to do more of these kind of things.
0: And just as an example, uh, one you posted late last week uh, while a student at Antioch College, Coretta Scott King, worked as a babysitter for the Lithgow family, babysitting the later (laughs) prominent actor, John Lithgow. So, I mean, you sort of take pains to to seek out these little uh, kind of gems, I suppose you could call them, things that people might not necessarily know, because people know the names, right? And they're probably paying a little more attention to it around Black History Month, but you've sort of made it a a quest to find out stuff that people didn't realize before maybe
6: yeah yeah and you know I'd like to take full credit for it but this has to go to my parents they were very much like the kind of people that wanted you to kind of go past the the more binary um kind of like fixtures of things and like look into the nuances and my my father particularly was always like very much a discussion type of person he always wanted to have more discussions about things and ask more questions. And my mother, this specific thing is kind of where I got the idea from. There used to be this, this little segment on the Tom Joyner morning show called little known black history fact. And my mom would make me listen to it every morning before school. Uh, I think from like maybe seventh grade, all the way up until like ninth or 10th. So I had to listen to it every day at like seven thirty in the morning. Um, so, you know, no matter what I had to get up early, you know? So, um, and that's kind of where this kind of came from in terms of the black history component, um but yeah i mean i've definitely been on this mission because i, I just know so many random facts <laughs> i don't know between like hosting nerd night you know and reading a bunch of books as a kid and listening to little known black history fact and just having a lot of interesting friends who just like say things in front of me and i just jot it down in my memory and i'm just like well i gotta share this stuff you know
0: mm-hmm. so as nerdy as things is it pr- it's primarily instagram you said but i is it on some other platforms too?
6: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, Instagram is probably my personal favorite. So I, I, you know, I've just kind of focused on that in terms of like that, those kind of like short videos and reels and stuff. And, uh, I just like the the format of Instagram. I mean, I'm a, a you know, a video person by trade, you know, I've been studying video production since I was in middle school, you know, I've, and so like, I just, I love that the idea that it's focuses on the image, you know? Um, but of course we're on Facebook and, and Twitter and, uh, YouTube. Um, ironically, YouTube is probably like the, the, the smallest platform we have. I just don't spend a lot of effort on it. I just, I just, I don't know. I'm just like, you uh, know, I'm very focused on certain things. Um, but, um, but yeah, we're on all the main platforms. The only one we're not on, um, and this might date me with my age is TikTok. We're not on TikTok. <laughs> but maybe we should be. I don't know. Everybody seems to be doing really well on TikTok. I don't know. Were
0: you into Vine before that closed down because that was like the precursor of TikTok
6: (laughs) that one was slightly too short for me I didn't I wasn't on Vine I did enjoy being sent Vines from my friends and laughing for about six seconds I think that was the (laughs) length of what it was but six seconds might be a little too quick for what the stuff that I'm doing because I mean there are times where like you know I'll write a quick little script for you know a, a video or something and I'm like it'll be like 42 seconds I'm like oh what do I have to cut out you know to squeeze it into 30 seconds or something you know and because that thirty seconds is really the format for like the, the, the Black History facts, things like that. And um, there's a few videos that I've recorded that are a long form, that are two three minutes. We haven't uploaded them yet, um, but it just kind of digs into more things that you just you honestly just can't cut out. You just you have to keep some of that stuff in there. And um, but yeah, Vine is uh, was a little too short for my taste.
0: <laughs> so in kind of putting forth some of these these little known facts and focusing on Black History Month and and some of the the uh, the leading lights people that we'd be talking about normally but just trying to take a different angle on it like you're getting some feedback from your audience like are people saying oh i didn't know about that or are you kind of converting some people to the arcane pieces of knowledge
6: i can tell you the funny thing is it's always the funny little facts like the, like you brought up the the one about Coretta Scott King when she was in college babysitting for the Lithgow family, which one of the baby kids she babysitted was John Lithgow, who uh, in the future became an, a famous actor. Uh, it's things like that that make people kind of chuckle and laugh. It's just like, wow, it makes the world feel so much smaller. You know, like this person knows that person. And uh, that's actually a fact that I didn't know until just recently. And the video is really more so about how we have this image of Coretta Scott King um, being Martin Luther King's Martin Luther King's wife. Um, And we just kind of see her through that lens. Um, But the reality is, you know, like most people, she was a a full formed character and she had a huge contribution to the civil rights movement. And uh, I wanted to use that quick little video to highlight that, by the way, you know, she was a, you know, a trained singer and very good at it. And which one of her roles in the civil rights movement was organizing concerts which can be great fundraisers for movements um, and performing at those concerts. And, you know, when time magazine, of course, highlighted MLK, they had a little blurb about her being this talented young soprano. And, you know, these things like that are important, you know, and it also brings up a, another important aspect of the civil rights movement of a lot of, you know, women who had to kind of take a back seat to the role of the men in the movement. Um, and, and maybe that was, you know, what they wanted to do. Maybe that's what they had to do, but, either way the the truth of their role in the, in that is um usually gets you know swept away and we don't really see that and, and 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 to to their credit i mean you know if they if they chose to do that it's a really bold and kind of courageous thing to kind of allow someone else to take the lead um but at the same time we should never forget the you know the importance that they've they've contributed to you know history so
0: when you think about black history month as a whole like do you, do you feel like society's attitude to it has changed much like since you know since you were coming up through elementary school and middle school like have the way people think about black history month and about some of these prominent figures has that changed a lot
6: um you know that's hard to say um i can say that you know when one thing there's 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 a certain level of balance that comes with it like okay so let me take it back one of the reasons why i i i like the idea of intersecting the you know the culture history and movies and then putting that through the lens of black history is that like nerds and black history are both kind of like existing on the fringes of society. Right. And, um, you know, for me that's like an obvious like thing to bring together, you know, and ironically both nerds and being black are both kind of mainstream now. And yet there still is quite a bit of pushback. And, um, for me it's like, okay, well, everything that I've always done in my adult life is about learning, reminding folks that learning is fun and people need to know these things. And I feel like, you know, if I can do it in a fun way and kind of show that, you know, nerd culture existing on the fringes of society and, and, you know, being black, which, you know, for generations of oppression uh, has existed in a similar kind of fringe, you know um, that they can work together and like, we can learn things and, and through that, through that lens. Um, But you know, it's hard to say if things are changing because I I, I also look at through the lens of like, uh, through a political lens. And when one thing gets you know very strong, then the opposition will push back. You know, like it's 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 a tough question to answer, to be honest. But I don't know. It's I'd like to think that things are better in some cases, uh, but I don't see the existence of like. I remember in two thousand eight when I was you know volunteering on the Obama campaign and. I remember so much of the discussion was like, okay, well, you know, we have a black president now, like this is, this is the beginning of the end for racism. And it's like, I don't know. (laughs) It doesn't, it doesn't seem like just one famous black person is going to, you know, move the needle on the way a whole uh, society of people feel. Um, It can influence it. It can be a great uh, component to visibility. And, but I don't know if that is the, the end all be all, you know, for you know the people on the other side.
0: I'm interested too in your your comments about this kind of intersection of of nerd culture and black culture. I mean, are there a lot of role models for for black nerds, like, like in, in popular culture, for example? It, it's it seems to me like that sort of genre may be fairly young still.
6: Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, I mean, well, there are for me personally. I, I mean, I don't want to speak for. Uh, you know the entire of the entirety of the diaspora, but <laughs> but uh, for me, I mean, I always saw MLK as a nerd. You know, I did I did a short video about um, the story about how Nichelle Nichols was going to quit um, the first season of Star Trek because she wanted to go back to doing um, uh, musical theater, um, and Gene Roddenberry, who the creator of Star Trek, really did not want her to do that. He was like, "Don't you see what I'm trying to build here? Like, this is a really special thing." And, uh, she had went to this fundraiser where she was going to, you know, be a you know famous person helping the fundraiser and she ran into MLK and he was, he just was gushing over her about what a huge fan he was and how, um, you know, his kids, you know, obviously, you know, you don't let, you don't let your kids stay up late at night, but he was like, Star Trek came on late. And he said, this is the only show that I will let my kids stay up and watch because for the first time we are seen on television the way we're supposed to be seen. You know, she played a role that was important to the story. She had autonomy. She had a a position of authority and leadership. And, you know, that just didn't happen before that. And the thing is, that's a little known story amongst most people. But for me, I knew that story as a kid. I heard that story when I was like 12 or 13. So in my eyes, oh, MLK is not just an ally in the civil rights movement. He's a nerd. He was staying up late with his kids watching Star Trek, which is what I did with my mom was stay up late and watch Star Trek because she's a huge trekkie of course and um so for me it was like oh yeah my heroes were also nerds you know like mlk is just is the absolute nerd you know he was digging into history and culture and policy and talking about things that people didn't want to talk about and he was also a trekkie so that was cool. Mm -hmm. when was the first episode of star trek uh 1966 i believe yeah 66 and you know it's funny um I've noticed a lot of leaders uh, in the last couple of years, whenever MLK comes around, they always make an effort to post colored pictures of him.
0: So mm-hmm. I try to do that
6: as well because we always kind of see him as existing in this like black and white era that's so far removed. And if he were alive today, he would have been younger than Betty White, you know, like he would have been, you know, God willing, he would still be alive had he not been killed, you know. So it's, uh, you know, that whole era is kind of more recent than we, we think it of. of and, and even Star Trek is the origins of that are more recent than we than would realize. I mean, Nichelle Nichols is still alive and she's still, I think she just did her last convention uh, just recently, maybe last month. Mm-hmm. So back to
0: Nerd Night and what you've been doing. And it, has it been kind of freeing to be for the last couple of years? I mean, there's obviously not been able to, to have the event in person, um, you know, during the, the, the height of the pandemic must be frustrating but then you've found some other outlets for the the kind of stuff that's going on in your
6: head oh god i gotta tell you it is absolutely free (laughs) and and let me clarify i love nerd night so much if i wasn't hosting it if i wasn't organizing it if i wasn't doing these events and comic cons and stuff i would be front first in line front row at whatever event i could be at um but it is it's it's a lot of work you know and it's I've been doing it, you know, for almost nine years now and I do a lot of other things. So it can be challenging to finish other things or to, you know, do your other work when you have something that's so demanding. And it's not just demanding in a, in a in a work sense, it's demanding in a, in a, in a social sense, in a personal sense, you know, like the one thing that people always want to talk to me about is Nerd Night. You know, whether I'm like, you know, buying a pub sub and I'm in line at Publix and it's like, Hey, when's Nerd Night coming back? When's Nerd Night coming back? And it's like you know, I don't know, you know, could you pull your mask up a little bit? <laughs> you know, and when we're able to take those off, then maybe, I don't know. Um But uh it's, but at the same time, you know, I was, I was definitely feeling very overwhelmed around that period going into 2020. Like this is, you know, I need a break, you know, and so COVID happened and it was like, well, I kind of got what I wanted. I got a, I got a bit of a break. Um And I thought that maybe over time, you know, we can kind of split the difference. I could take a break and go back to doing it and feel refreshed. But then this thing just keeps dragging on. And we, you know, we did a few events. We did a really great event with the museum of art, which is a huge hit. We had over 600 people in attendance, Um, but it wasn't quite nerd night. You know, it wasn't quite presentations on stage with an audience. It was like, okay, we're collaborating and we're taking the culture of what we do and using it and showing it through art. And we did one or two events back at Stardust, you know, those small intimate ones, and but you know omicron delta has made it very challenging and you know I, I try to stay on top of 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 the news in terms of uh covid and and not to like scare myself but just to be you know realistic about it and it just it looks good and then it looks bad it looks good and then it looks bad and it, so it's like i know we have to just live with this thing now but i haven't figured out quite how to navigate large planning large events you know, long-term because I like to plan things months in advance. Just so everything is, you know, all the T's are crossed, eyes are dotted. And, and you can't really do that because like I can plan, I can plan something for April and then, you know, end of March, by the way, we got Omicron B or Omicron C or whatever. And it's like, well, you know, it's a lot of people at first were like, don't do it, you know, like, but then a year passed, they're like, well, we're just going to live with it. Just, you know, do something, you know, (laughs) like some people are definitely kind of like pushing, nudging me to just do it again and I. I think for them, it's just, they're just sick of being separated, you know, and Nerd Night has always been about bringing people together. So, you know, the idea of doing it through Zoom is like, okay, we did a, t- a few, you know, two or three of those, but it's not really what Nerd Night is about. You know, it's really about people being together. And that's what it's been about for me since day one. So, you know, the idea of like being siloed through a screen is not exactly, you know, the point of it all. If we just wanted to learn cool stuff you know they could be at home with a textbook you know like they could be at home with the internet they don't they don't need me or nerd night for that you know you know the real joy of an event is is being present and you know sharing moments with people and, and being together
0: so would it be fair to say that this kind of new normal to to use that cliche nerd night will be back i just not quite sure how
6: yeah, where. yeah. i mean it, it'll definitely be back um I'm still not sure how or the exact date when, um, but it it will be back and um, you know because we can't you know I I can't be on the farm forever, <laughs> but, um, but um, I don't know I just I really just don't know it's it's hard to say and I know we have an, uh, we have something penciled in for March 14th because March 14th is Nerd Night Day which is our anniversary, um, but I'm not quite sure if I want to announce something and then the next week have to cancel it you know so. I haven't really said anything about it through our social channels or through our email blast, but um, but yeah, it's it's we got something on the books, but I don't know, it's might have to put the kibosh on that, so we'll see.
0: And March fourteenth is, is that something to do with pie?
6: That's right. Yeah, it's it's right. pie day. And uh, March fourteenth is Pi day, also Albert Einstein's birthday, a uh, little known fact there. And uh, it was the first of Nerd Night Orlando event in uh, that we had. It was at Stardust, March fourteenth, two thousand thirteen.
0: Hmm. In the meantime, if people want to learn more about black history um, through the nerd glasses, I suppose, um, <laughs> yeah. what channel should they be looking at?
6: Yeah, they can go to NerdierThings.com, which will redirect to the YouTube page. But uh, obviously, if you go to Nerdier things on all the uh, social media channels, the big ones, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, we're present on all those. It stays pretty active. When I'm not posting educational things, there's definitely a funny meme you know, or a picture of me wearing a nerdier things t-shirt, which I think is pretty cool. So
0: (laughs) Ricardo Williams, founder of Nerd Night Orlando. Thanks so much for your time.
6: Thank you so much, Matthew, for having me. This was great. Support for Intersection comes from
0: Advent Health and from our listeners. Editorial guidance from LaToya Dennis. Intersection's intern is Allegra Montesano. Find archived episodes of Intersection on WMFE.org slash Intersection and subscribe to the podcast. I'm Matthew Petty. Thanks for listening.